0: Does God understand our struggles when we pray to Him? Pastor Tom Keller has this to say.
1: Jesus, having been 100% God, but also 100% man, that same Jesus who is in heaven, in the same resurrected body He was in on the earth, He is seated by the Father in heaven, interceding for you. He can identify with and understand every single trial and anxiety and fear that you go through. Hebrews 4 verse 15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. He can identify with our temptations, with our struggles.
0: delighted you could be with us. This is Study the Word, where we study the Word of God each day with our Bible teacher, Pastor Tom Keller. He's currently in chapter 12 of the Gospel of John. Jesus knows the cross is just a few days away, and we learn that Jesus, God the Son, experienced a troubled soul. Pastor Tom helps us understand the meaning of it all. We begin our study with a quick review.
1: John chapter 12 Now, for some background, today's story takes place during Jesus' last week before going to the cross. Earlier in chapter 12, the teaching was Jesus' triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, this parade that took place throughout the streets of Jerusalem. We found that in John 12, 12, the next day the news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city. A large crowd of Passover visitors Took palm branches and went down to the road to meet him. They shouted, Praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the King of Israel. Hail to the King of Israel. This was the first time the people proclaimed Jesus as King that he accepted it the first time. And so this parade appeared, I think, to all observers to the beginning of Jesus finally, finally assuming his rightful title and rule as Messiah and King of the Jews. The disciples believed this. I think they thought, now we're finally coming into our position of power. And I believe the enemies of Jesus saw that something had changed as well. Because in Palm Sunday, they said this as a sign of their, at that time, thoughtful defeat, John 12, verse 19, the Pharisees said to each other, there's nothing we can do. Look, everyone has gone after him. And so it would appear that almost everyone believed that Jesus' next move would be to take on his role as king and ruler, a glorious, powerful moment where everyone believed this was going to happen. Next, everyone except Jesus who was instead filled with dread and fear to some degree. This is where we pick up today in chapter 12, verse 27. Now my soul is deeply troubled, Jesus says. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But this is the very reason I came. Father, bring glory to your name. Then a voice spoke from heaven saying, I have already brought glory to my name and I will do so Again. In Greek, the word for troubled is the word tarasso, and it means to strike one's spirit with fear and dread. That was Jesus's sense. He was troubled. And it's interesting that here on Palm Sunday, Jesus said, Should I ask God to save me from the cross? And Jesus answers himself. He never presents that as a question to God, he answers itself without needing to take it to God because he already knows the answer. He says, no, because that is the very reason why I came. But then in just four days from now, on Thursday night in the garden, Jesus does ask the Father if he could be saved from the cross. Matthew 26, verse 39. He, Jesus, went on a little further and bowed with his face to the ground. This is in the garden praying, my father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken away from me, yet I want your will to be done, not mine. So what made the difference? Why on Sunday does he say, this is why I came? And yet on Thursday, he says, can I be delivered from this? I believe that as the hour drew closer Jesus, as you know, was 100% God and 100% man. But I suspect that this 100% man was literally crushed with dread and despair, knowing what the cross was going to be like. And Jesus said as much as he entered the garden that night in Matthew 26, verse 38, Jesus told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. And you know, this has an application for us, a very practical application. Jesus, having been 100% God, but also 100% man, that same Jesus who is in heaven, in the same resurrected body he was in on the earth, the same resurrected body that the men on the road to Emmaus saw him in, in that same body, he is seated by the Father in heaven, interceding for you. And he he can identify with and understand every single trial and anxiety and fear that you go through. Every one. Hebrews 4, verse 15 says this: For we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet he did not sin. He can identify with our temptations, with our struggles. In Hebrews chapter 2, it says this, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And that's why when we cry out to Jesus, not only does he understand our heart, our cry, he can identify with it as well because he knows what it was like. And to this non-prayed prayer in verse 27 Jesus then adds a prayer in his second part of that statement, verse 28, Father, bring glory to your name. Then a voice spoke from heaven saying, I have already brought glory to my name and I will do so again. I've shared this before, but try to always remember that our primary motive that we would have for every prayer would be that through the answering of that prayer, it would bring honor and glory to God. The primary reason we pray. You know, I'll say to somebody who says he wants to stop smoking, I'll say, why do you want to quit smoking? And they'll usually say something like this. It's unhealthy. It's expensive. I don't want my kids to smoke. It's a bad witness. Well, those are all good and reasonable. But the best reason, the best reason, I want to quit so that through my quitting, it would bring honor and glory to God. That I'd have a testimony to others of how he quit help me quit smoking or drinking or drugging or partying, whatever it is, that it would bring glory to God. You think Jesus is a pretty good model for prayer? He prayed, Father, give glory to your name. And then verse 37, but though he had done so many miracles before them, yet they believed not on him. Now I find this to be very interesting and an unexpected response from the thousands of people who witnessed Jesus' miracles because these miracles were to be the proof that he was who he claimed to be. We read that back in John chapter 5, verse 36. This is exactly what Isaiah the prophet had predicted. Lord, who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful right arm? He says, But Jesus said, but I have a greater witness than John, a greater witness than John the Baptist, my teachings and my miracles. Listen, the Father gave me these works to accomplish, and they prove that he sent me. The hundreds of thousands, I think, of miracles that he did were to prove that he was who he claimed to be. And the next verse tells us that this is exactly what Isaiah had predicted, that they would not. John 12, verse 38 This is exactly what Isaiah the prophet had predicted. Lord, who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? And then the next verse, although Isaiah predicted this, the question remains, why? Well, we are given an interesting insight into the reasons for the unbelief, even among his 12 disciples. Even they struggled with belief. If you look at the scene where Jesus fed the 5,000, we read this in Mark 6, verse 52. Speaking of the 12 disciples, for they still didn't understand the significance of the miracles of the loaves. Their hearts were too hard to take it in. Amplified Bible says it this way, because they had not understood the miracle of the loaves, speaking of the disciples, how it revealed the power and deity of Jesus. But in fact, their heart was hardened, being oblivious and indifferent to his amazing works. Living Bible says, for they didn't want to believe. It was a choice on their part to believe or not to believe. Philip's translation says, they had not had the sense to learn the lesson of the loaves. Even that miracle, speaking of the disciples, even the twelve had not opened their eyes to who he was. Christendom said this, quote, they could not because they would not. But even along with that choice to harden their hearts, God then assists in keeping that veil of unbelief in place until they believe. This is a little interesting that he assists in that unbelief. 2 Corinthians three fourteen. But the people's minds were hardened. And to this day, whenever the Old Covenant is being read, the same veil covers their minds. So they cannot understand the truth. And this veil can be removed only by believing in Christ, two verses later. But whenever someone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. And this lines up with Isaiah's prophecy quoted by John here, in john 12 39 but the people couldn't believe for as isaiah also said the lord has blinded their eyes he takes an active role the lord has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that their eyes cannot see their hearts cannot understand and they cannot turn to me and have me heal them verse 40 says the lord has blinded their eyes in greek the word is to flow. And it means here to blunt the mental discernment, to darken the mind. Listen, it says that God blunts the mental discernment of a person. The Lord darkens their mind. So the million-dollar question is, why would God do this? Why would he blunt the unbeliever's discernment of deeper things? Why would he darken the mind of an unbeliever to spiritual things? Why would he keep that veil of blindness in place until they choose to believe? Why? I'm glad you asked. Because if the complete knowledge of the Bible were to be put into the hands of a willful infidel, it would create a monster. Case in point, Satan's knowledge of the scripture when he tempted in the wilderness, he used the scriptures like a club, like a weapon. Jesus responded in like fashion with the weapon back. But Satan knew the word. He knew how to twist it. I have, through my years of being a pastor, heard hard-hearted, callous husbands use the scriptures that talk about a wife's biblical responsibilities in an attempt to bludgeon their wives into submission while they as husbands lived as though not a single scriptural mandate applied to them as husbands. And I'll tell you, it's one of the most horrible scenes you can ever sit in. To hear a man take the scriptures and use it to bludgeon his wife as he is irresponsible to respond, it's a dangerous thing. This is exactly what Jesus was referring to when he said this in Matthew chapter 7 verse 6. Do not give what is holy to dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. That's what happens in those meetings. And this is a different translation, NIV. Do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Folks, never forget this. Someone has once said that if you teach someone the Bible, but don't get their heart, you create a monster. And boy, that's true. They'll use it against people. I believe C.S. Lewis was under the same idea of the teacher not involving themselves in trying to force open the heart of a student to learning when he wrote this, quote, the job of an educator is not to cut down the jungle but to water the desert. The role of a teacher is not to try to knock down all the obstacles that that person is putting in front of you. That's not the teacher's responsibility. It's to find people that are thirsty, that want water, right? The job of an educator is not to cut down the jungle, but to water the desert. Going on to verse 41. Isaiah was referring to Jesus when he said this because he saw the future... And spoke of the Messiah's glory. Do you remember when Isaiah was given this vision of God's glory? It's in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. It was the year King Uzziah died that I saw the Lord, Isaiah speaking. He was sitting on a lofty throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Attending him were mighty seraphim, angels, each having six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they flew. They were calling out to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of heaven's armies. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Their voices shook the temple to its foundations, and the entire building was filled with smoke. Then I said, It's all over. I am doomed, for I'm a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips." Yet I have seen the king, the Lord of heaven's armies. And then, I believe Isaiah sees Jesus a few verses later in verse 8. Then I heard the Lord asking, Whom should I send as a messenger to go to this people? Who will go for us? And Isaiah said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Yes, go and say to this people. This is the context of what Jesus said in John. John. Yes, go and say to the people, listen carefully, but do not understand. Watch closely, but learn nothing. Harden the hearts of these people. Plug their ears and shut their eyes. That way they will not see with their eyes, nor hear with their ears, nor understand with their hearts, and turn to me for healing. And then this message of Isaiah goes on. And I believe in some respects, this same message applies to the Jews even today. Listen to this. Isaiah 6.11, Then the Lord said, How long will this go on? The the hardness, the blindness, the deafness. And he replied, Until their towns are empty, their houses are deserted, until the whole country is a wasteland, until the Lord has sent everyone away and the entire land of Israel lies deserted. If even a tenth, a remnant, survive, it will be invaded again and burned. But as a tebrinth or oak tree leaves a stump when it is cut down, so Israel's stump will be a holy seed. And that's true. In the end times, we read about this in Zechariah 12. I will make Jerusalem like an intoxicating drink that makes the nearby nations stagger when they send their armies to besiege Jerusalem and Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock. All the nations will gather against it to try to move it, but they will only hurt themselves. And this, I think, refers to after the rapture and after the battle of Gog and Magog, God is going to supernaturally deliver Israel from the hand of the ruler of Russia when he drops down from Gog and the vast host of Muslim armies that are going to join him in his attempted war against Israel. Zechariah 12, verse 9 says this, For on that day I will begin to destroy all the nations that come against Israel. And God does. He does this supernaturally. Speaking of this ruler from the north, this ruler of Gog and Magog, Ezekiel 38 says this. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Are you the one I was talking about long ago? This is speaking of the leader of Russia. The one I was talking about long ago when I announced through Israel's prophets that in the future, I would bring you against my people. But this is what the sovereign Lord says. When Gog invades the land of Israel, my fury will boil over. And then a few verses later, in verse 21, it says this. I will summon the sword against you on all the hills of Israel, says the sovereign Lord. Your men will turn your swords against each other. This is the leader of Russia and all the Muslim nations that surround Israel, most of the Muslim nations that surround Israel. They will come together. Verse 22, I will punish you and your armies with disease and bloodshed. I will send torrential rain, hailstones, fire, and burning sulfur. In this way, I will show my greatness and holiness, and I will make myself known to all the nations of the world. Now, think of the context of this. In the context of this huge battle, God says, I will make myself known to all the nations of the world, and they will know that I am the Lord. And so by the way of the world observing these Jews being supernaturally delivered by God in this battle of Gog and Magog, where we're told that 85% of this probably multi-million army that comes against them, Israel won't shoot a cannon, a gun, a rocket, a pistol, nothing. God will kill 85% of this horde of armies that come against them. And as a result of that, the Jews are going to have worldwide supernatural favor before the nation. In fact, to this extent, Zechariah 8.23 says, this is what the Lord of Heaven's army says, in those days, 10 men from 10 different nations and languages of the world will clutch at the sleeve of one Jew and they will say, please let us walk with you for we have heard that God is with you. And due to this worldwide favor, 85% 85% of these armies being destroyed by God, it will allow the Antichrist, I believe, to force the hand of the Muslims to allow the Jews to build their temple once again on the Temple Mount. And this all ties in back to what Isaiah said in chapter 6, verse 11. And the Lord, I said, Lord, how long will this go on? He replied, until their towns are empty, their houses are deserted, And the whole country is a wasteland. But God's promise remains to the Jews. Two verses later, verse 13. If even a tenth, a remnant survive, it will be invaded again and burned. But as a tabernacle or oak tree leaves a stump when it was cut down, so Israel's stump will be a holy seed. Out of that stump will come a holy people eventually. And we read of this wholesale turning of the Jews, this stump coming to Christ, During the seven years of tribulation, in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, God says, Then I will pour out a spirit of grace and prayer in the family of David, on the Jews, and on the people of Jerusalem. They will look on me whom they have pierced. Jesus is saying, They will look on Jesus whom they will realize they pierced, they killed on the cross, and mourn for him as for an only son. The veil will come off their eyes. They will all realize That Jesus was the Messiah, and they will grieve bitterly for him as for a firstborn son who has died. But the Antichrist institutes a program against the Jews and murders two thirds of the Jews in the end times. Zechariah 13, verse 8 and 9 Two thirds of the people in the land will be cut off and die, says the Lord, but one third will be left in the land. I will bring that group, the one third, through the fire. And I will make them pure. I will refine them like silver, purify them like gold. They will call on my name, on the name of Jesus. And I will answer them. I will say, these are my people. And they will say, the Lord is our God. And Paul confirms this in Romans 11, that the remaining one-third Jews will all be saved by the end of the seven years. Paul says, and so all Israel will be saved through Jesus. Jesus. As the scriptures say, the one who rescues will come from Jerusalem and he will turn Israel away from ungodliness. So some of what Isaiah was referring to.
0: You're listening to Study the Word with Pastor Tom Keller and part of our study in the Gospel of John. Replay any message you enjoy by going to our website, ccleb.com, or visit our YouTube page, Subscribe to our channel at Calvary Chapel, Lebanon, and watch our services live or on demand. For a CD copy, call us at 717-273-5633. Again, that's 717-273-5633. Stay connected with us through Facebook and Instagram. You'll find us at Calvary Chapel, Lebanon, PA. God is doing a great work through Study the Word, and perhaps you'd like to be a part of it. You can do so through your prayers and financial support. To help us provide Study the Word on stations like this one all across the nation, visit ccleb.com or call 717-273-5633. If you prefer to write, let me give you our mailing address, Study the Word, 740 Willow Street, Lebanon, Pennsylvania, 17046. Tom Keller is the pastor of Calvary Chapel, Lebanon, and he loves to meet his radio listeners. For more information about our service times or to watch the live stream, visit ccleb.com or again go to our YouTube channel at Calvary Chapel Lebanon. There's much more to come in the Gospel of John. Join us in the days ahead. Study the Word with Pastor Tom Kellers presented by Calvary Chapel Lebanon, Pennsylvania. It made possible through the support of our listeners.